Hello, my name's Paul Reeves and I'm Head of Employment at Stevenson Harwood. Together with Imogen today, we're going to talk about workplace culture and developments since the Me Too movement hit the headlines back in autumn 2017. Yes, it's over three years since this came to prominence and quite a lot's happened in the world since then. What the Me Too movement did, it prompted a renewed focus on sexual harassment in the workplace. Imogen. Hello. Before we start, I thought it would be useful to have an overview of this area and to understand the legal position on workplace sexual harassment. The Equality Act 2010 defines sexual harassment as unwanted conduct of a sexual nature that has the purpose or effect of violating an individual's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for that individual. Sexual harassment can take many forms, from physical conduct or sexual advances to sexual comments, innuendo or the sharing of content or images of a sexual nature. While sexual harassment is often deliberate, it can be unintentional. This means that harassment can take place without any negative intention on the part of the harasser, provided the victim's reaction is not unreasonable. Further, recent case law has shown that the it-was-only-banter excuse will not stand up to scrutiny in the employment tribunal. It is also worth remembering that a one-off event can amount to harassment. The hashtag MeToo movement went viral on social media in October 2017, prompted by accusations of sexual misconduct against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. The movement exposed the widespread and systemic issue of sexual harassment in the workplace and placed pressure on employers to promote a culture of acceptable behaviour. This elevated the issue to one of the main topics of concern for companies around the globe. It had always been on employers' radars, but now it became a priority. Now, three years since it dominated the headlines, Me Too is very much a relevant issue and should remain at the forefront of employers' and employees' minds. Thanks, Imogen. It's safe to say that in our experience, employees are now more aware of their rights than ever before. And this has certainly been the case over the last three years. Employers should be under no illusion as to their obligations to provide and promote a safe, equal and diverse working environment. Although we're only focusing on Me Too today, this shouldn't be at the expense of any of the other protected characteristics, for example, age, race, religion, sexual orientation, in the ways that employers tackle discrimination and harassment in the workplace. So Imogen, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the developments we've seen in relation to workplace culture? Unfortunately, Me Too hasn't eradicated the issue and we do continue to see high-profile cases of employers accused of promoting a culture of sexual harassment despite the increased scrutiny. Last year, it was reported that workers at McDonald's had been subject to a toxic culture of sexual harassment which has allegedly seen at least a 1,000 women abused and predatory employees moved to different stores rather than being disciplined. Allegations ranged from managers making repeated sexual comments to employees to abusing their access to workers' contact details in order to send explicit photos. Stories of sexual harassment at work are not limited to any one industry or workplace. Last month, the Times reported on allegations of serial sexual harassment and abuse taking place throughout the fashion world. Just last week, the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal fined a partner at a law firm £30,000 and ordered him to pay £21,000 in costs after he was found guilty of sexual harassment and racist behaviour in the office. Although the partner in question narrowly avoided being struck off, individuals should be in no doubt as to the serious long-term implications such behaviour can have, particularly in a regulated environment. What is notable is that the Equality and Human Rights Commission, the regulatory body which is responsible for enforcing the Equality Act 2010, is increasingly taking steps to assist and encourage employers to promote a positive working environment free from harassment. 
That body published guidance in January 2020 entitled Sexual Harassment and Harassment at Work, which sought to provide practical tips on what steps an employer can take. It emphasised the importance of effective policies and procedures and suggested that employers should consider preparing separate strategy documents to accompany their anti-harassment policy, setting out what measures they will take to tackle the different forms of harassment. That's right, and in short, the Commission's guidance reinforces the need for employers to be active in tackling harassment. It's important to remember that employers can be liable for harassment by their employees if that is conducted in the course of their employment. To provide a defence against this, employers would need to show that they took all reasonable steps to prevent the harassment. Now, the reasonable steps defence is a very high hurdle to overcome. It's not just a case of hosting a training session or listening to a podcast. It must permeate all aspects of the workplace and needs to be driven from the top down. What is reasonable? Well, that will vary from employer to employer and depending on the size of the employer as to how much they can actually do in the workplace. But what is clear that no employer is exempt and this guidance provides a useful steer on the kind of steps an employer will be expected to take if it seeks to rely on the reasonable steps defence. Employers should be considering the steps it can take to prevent harassment now rather than once an incident has been brought to its attention. So employers need to be proactive, not reactive, with regard to this issue. Not only does harassment in the workplace have a damaging effect on workers' morale, but it can have other consequences. For example, it can impact your ability to hire and retain the best talent. It can have a detrimental impact on the health and productivity of your staff. But it also exposes the employer to liability for actions of its employees, not just financially, but in the press. And Imogen, you've just highlighted some very good examples of this. Although the guidance is not a statutory code, and the Employment Tribunal is therefore not obliged to follow it, it can, and in my view, it will be referred to in legal proceedings and will definitely be relied upon by claimants to support their claims. So what does this mean for you as an employer? Well, you need to have robust policies. You need to regularly provide workplace training and have effective procedures to quickly and effectively deal with any issues that arise if you're wanting to rely on the reasonable steps defence. And not just having workplace training, there needs to be positive follow-up so that individuals actually demonstrate what they've learned from that training. My view would be not to focus on the reasonable steps defence, but to get the culture right now to avoid such claims. Now, it's impossible to avoid all claims, but a positive workplace culture will certainly mitigate and put you in the best possible position to defend such claims. Thanks, Paul. So Sainsbury's is a company that has recently taken active steps to prevent harassment in the workplace, albeit not entirely of its own volition. It is also another example of the Equality Human Rights Commission taking steps to help and encourage employers to promote a positive workplace free from harassment. Following a highly publicised employment tribunal claim, the Equality and Human Rights Commission wrote to the retailer stating it was considering using its enforcement powers and asking it to provide information and documentation on its safeguarding procedures for employees. Whilst the Equality and Human Rights Commission recognised that the household names had made improvements to its understanding, policies, practices and procedures since the judgment was issued, it reached the view that further progress could and should be made. As an alternative to an investigation, Sainsbury's agreed to enter into a legally binding agreement with the Equality and Human Rights Commission, requiring the supermarket to take all reasonable steps to prevent workplace harassment amongst its 116,000 employees nationwide. This included preparing a discrimination guide for line managers and employees, advising staff on how to deal with harassment through internal communications, 
establishing more effective training for its workforce and providing regular reports to the Equality and Human Rights Commission on its progress. Employers should not underestimate the significance of workplace culture and the importance of holding individuals to account for the behaviour. Some of these I've already touched upon, including the reputational consequences that may follow from such cases. And Imogen's highlighted uh, a couple of good examples earlier for those particular law firms or employers. It's natural that clients and customers may question the culture and values of a company that seems unable to put safeguards in place to take appropriate action where necessary. And if we look at the recent promotion at AMP with regard to their new chief executive officer at AMP Capital, this is a classic example. The individual was promoted to chief executive despite allegations of sexual harassment being made against him in 2017. These allegations were upheld by an independent workplace investigation. And although he was financially penalised at the time, he kept his job and ultimately has been promoted. If we contrast that with the lady that was at the centre of the case, she was required to sign up to a non-disclosure agreement and no longer works at AMP. This sends the wrong message to clients and also to the rest of the workforce and comes up, touches on the point I was making earlier about getting the culture right from the top down. Turning now to just look at um, non-disclosure agreements or gagging clauses as they're often called, this has also been a recent topic of discussion, particularly arising from the Me Too movement. Amid growing controversy and a consultation on confidentiality issued in March last year, the government has reacted and has announced plans to introduce legislation to crack down on the misuse of such agreements. Although at this stage we don't have any details, but we will report further once, once these are announced. What we can say is that the legislation is expected to make it mandatory for individuals signing non-disclosure agreements to receive independent legal advice on the limitations of that clause. That advice will also stress that information may still be disclosed to certain categories of public bodies, for example, the police, medical staff, social workers, and obviously lawyers to take advice on the clause. The legislation will also require employers to explain the limitations of a confidentiality clause in plain English, in the settlement agreement, and in any other written statement. New enforcement measures will also come into force to deal with the use of unlawful NDAs. For example, a settlement agreement that does not comply with this new legislation, we expect that agreement to be struck down as being void. So it's best to prepare ourselves for this legislation because it's clearly coming. And what I'd suggest is that you look at your template agreements to ensure that the confidentiality provisions are appropriately drafted and don't prevent, for example, disclosure to the police or a medical advisor. Further, where an employee enters into a settlement agreement with you following allegations of sexual harassment, one thing that you as an employer could do is ensure that that agreement is approved at a senior level, maybe at the board level, maybe a level below, to ensure that there is an effective monitoring system going on with regard to such claims. For example, we want to avoid the same individual having repeated claims against them. We also want to monitor whether there are a number of these types of agreements around the business. Because if we are seeing a pattern of behaviour, then that demonstrates that more action needs to be taken to change culture. Imogen, do you want to just talk a little bit more about trends or steps that have been taken since 2017? Yes, so we've certainly seen a tightening up of policies in recent times. So, for example, BlackRock has recently introduced a policy requiring employees to disclose relationships outside of the office. Staff were already expected to tell managers if they were dating a colleague, but the new policy requires them to disclose relationships with external partners with a connection to the firm. 
This has the potential of shining a light into the personal lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Although the primary purpose of the policy was stated to be to prevent conflicts of interest arising, we have certainly seen an increased focus on managing workplace relationships since the Me Too movement. So let's just summarise where we've got to in this podcast. It's clear that there is more than one reason why it's important for employers to carefully consider the steps it can take to promote a diverse and inclusive working environment, free from harassment. This is not just because of the damaging effect it can have on workers' morale, health, productivity, retention, hiring. It also has a massive impact on an employer's reputation, not just the company, but for the individuals concerned. So it's clear we've come a long way in the last three years since the Me Too movement went viral. But as with everything, there's clearly some way to go. Imogen, we briefly touched on some of the practical steps an employer can take to promote a positive working culture. Do you want to just wrap up with um, a few other points that there may be on this? Yes. So as mentioned, employers should ensure that they have an effective and well-communicated anti-harassment policy in place. But even if the employer does have an anti-harassment policy in place, it should not rest on its laurels. Having a policy is not a tick box exercise. The policy should be continually reviewed for effectiveness and updated as and when required. It should also be applied consistently, no matter who is involved. You cannot apply it more strictly to one employee compared to another because of their perceived value to the business, for example. Employees need to feel confident that they can call out bad behaviour and employees also need to feel confident that false or bad faith allegations are also dealt with appropriately. Employers should also actively engage with their staff to understand where any potential issues lie and whether the steps it is taking to prevent harassment in the workplace are effectively working. How employers choose to engage with its staff will differ depending on, for example, the size of the employer and the nature of the workforce. However, examples could include regular one-to-ones, staff surveys, exit interviews or open-door policies. I think that's a really good point you make there, Imogen, because the having an effective reporting system that allows employees to raise issues and know that they'll be heard sympathetically is vital if we're going to tackle this issue. If, however employees feel that raising concerns and complaints just is just going to disappear into a black hole, then you're never going to effectively change culture. As you've said, what's appropriate for one will differ between employers. Some employers have set up online or independent telephone-based services to allow employees to raise complaints, a bit like a whistleblowing hotline. Others have designated a harassment officer or have a designated email address where individuals can raise concerns. And this leads me to another practical step. Providing training to employees so that they understand what harassment in the workplace looks like and what to do if they experience it, particularly those in a management responsibility. They're the eyes and ears of the business. They see things going on more than the the most senior management. So they need to be armed with the tools to be able to spot and deal with any issues that are in their team. The one thing they can't do is bury their head in the sands. It's not just a case of adopting one of the suggestions Image and I have covered. You need to adopt a suite of measures. But all this will be worthless if there isn't a consistent message from the most senior people in the business downwards that culture, bad behaviour will not be tolerated any longer. You can't have a two-tier system, as appears with some organisations, where those who are, if you like, perceived to be valuable to the business avoid these issues and retain their careers where those who speak up and call out the bad behaviours are those that leave, whether under a settlement agreement or otherwise, you've got to have the same system for everyone. Thank you, Paul. 
So that's all for our podcast today. You can listen again to our podcast and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. Thank you for listening. 